Heritage. Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. Later in the programme, I'll be talking to Chris Ledismo, a park ranger from Samburu in northern Kenya, who's trying to save African elephants in his region from poachers. With more pieces of ivory on sale than any other city in the world, Hong Kong is the epicentre of the world's legal ivory trade, a trade which has been proven to provide cover for a parallel illegal trade. But first, I'm joined by retired wine connoisseur David Webster, who talks about his childhood in Hong Kong in the 1950s, his RAF dad, Hong Kong nightlife, before and at the start of Lan Kwai Fong, and his zoologist stepfather. My father was in the Air Force. My memories of the first place he was sent to was Cranwell, which I loved. It was a beautiful area in Lincolnshire. Then the second place was up in County Durham, which I didn't particularly like. He'd been in the Air Force since the mid-30s, had done bombing raids and stuff in Europe. Germany, then moved to Asia, involved with the Japanese in Burma and those sort of areas. So he had a longish career in the Air Force. So coming here with the Air so Force, where was he based? In Kai Tak, which was then a serious military base, almost bigger for military in those days than it was for airliners. So we came out by ship, this lovely old troop ship called the Emperor Orwell, and then arrived in Hong Kong in about March 55. So how old were you? I was seven and a half. And what were your first impressions of Hong Kong? Can you recall? I pretty much loved it from, I wouldn't quite say day one, because we had to stay for a short term in an old, a rather down market hotel in Modi Road area, because the apartment we were going to have in Argar Street, New Gardens, was not ready for us then, so we had a month or two there. So eventually we moved into Argyle Street. It's called Yew Gardens, owned by the Andrew Yew family, who owned Yewcliffe. So Yewcliffe would have still been here? Oh, yes. I, I used to go there because my father was quite friendly with him. I loved Argyle Street. It's a beautiful block of, you know, two, not high-rise, lowish-rise blocks big garden at the front we had i think it was quite close to kg5 school and we used to go to see friends in kudori avenue i went to school in gun club barracks a military school and we'd drive to big wave bay and sheko which when you think of it then we'd have to take the car ferry from jordan road area and, and do you remember drive. what kind of car he had a jaguar i think at that time you'd take the car ferry take the car ferry and then get off somewhere near North Point or a little bit further down and then we go up the road and down to Sheko Big Wave Bay, mostly Big Wave Bay. And, then, and what would have been, when you went to Big Wave Bay, I mean, what would, did you have little beach huts? Yes, little beach huts, quite a lot of them, actually. It was a popular beach, so, but mostly expats, I would say. The locals weren't really, at that time, big on going to beaches. Well, it was a lovely castle-like building right on the edge of Repulse Bay. Lovely old building, but it, it was knocked down. It was just beautiful. It had a pool. It was just lovely old-style building. As I say, a bit like an old castle. And we would then stayed for a week. Uh, we, my father was very friendly with the Air Commodore, Michael Messenger, and they were going away for a holiday somewhere in Asia for a week. And they said, oh, you can stay at, our, at what was then called Air House, the old one. At Kai Tak? No, this was a beautiful building on, as you come down Repulse Bay Road, 
overlooking Deepwater Bay. And it's like a Spanish-style villa. Very, very biggish size, beautiful place. Absolutely lovely. And it still exists? Still exists, yeah. And that was where the Air Commodore would that be based? That was called Air House then. Now it's got a completely different name. But Air House would have been his actual official residence? That was the official residence of the senior commander in Hong Kong for the Air Force. So my father started off working mostly in Kai Tak. So he was a pilot? He was still flying, but not much by the, that stage. He was more in administrative work. He had to, to do the odd flight to keep going. Kaitak at that time, if you went up there and it was largely more military than commercial, what kind of planes could you see up there? Vampires and Venoms were the, the fighter jets. They obviously had some cargo-type jets and people-carrying jet, uh, jets or propeller-driven them. But it was a nice place to go, and we'd go boating quite often too, using the Air Commodore's boat, he'd invite us. So we'd see other parts of Hong Kong towards Clearwater Bay, that area. But Kai Tak commercially would have been very quiet at that time. Fairly quiet, I would say, yes. Um, it was starting to probably get busier, I would think. So when you first arrive here in 1955, you come in on a troop ship. So you would have come into Victoria Harbour? Absolutely. We docked at, in Kowloon, just on Chimchashui area. Now it's Ocean Terminal. So then it was boarding school. Came out for my first holiday to Hong Kong, Christmas 59. By then, my father had come back, worked briefly for the Morning Post as sports editor. He was great sports fanatic and horse racing and golf and um, loved all those things. Now horse racing at that time would have been just Happy Valley? Uh, yes, pretty much, absolutely. And the man who got him into the post, a, a guy called Peter Plumley, who suggested he join, was in fact a, an amateur jockey. In those days, lots of them were amateur. So as sports ed he was a sports editor, what would his job entail during the week? Oh, they worked very late. The building was just down here, where uh, Jimmy's Kitchen is now. It's called South China Building, and that was the old South China Morning Post building back then. 59, as I say, I came back for the first holiday. By then, we were living in Bowen Road, lovely old building, two-storey. After Christmas, I fell off a low wall and ended up breaking my arm. So that delayed my return to the school term. And then from then through the 60s, it was all school holidays. We used to come out. In those days, we'd be flying. And what kind of plane did you use to come well, out in the 60s? Always, in those days, always British Airways, or BOAC, as it was. And I think it was of Comets and Britannias. The Britannia was a propeller plane, and then we did Comet a few times. And oh. you would have several stops on the way? Well, it, there'd always be then a, a sort of breakdown. So... We ended up having to spend the night in the Mount Lavinia Hotel in Colombo. We had a tour of the Rhine Falls because half a day we were delayed there. We had a tour around the centre of Delhi. We had to stop off in Calcutta once. I mean, there was often a problem back then. And the flight was obviously much longer than today. One time, my father by then had moved to... He was spending part-time in Japan... Because in those days, people used to go on leave for three or four months. It's not like today, because you would only go every three years. So when the boss in Japan had to go, my father then went up there. So in the summer of 65, 
we spent half the time in Hong Kong and half the time in Tokyo. Sixty-three. So my parents divorced, and later that year, she married a man called Doc. Ken Searle. He was also a great zoologist. He was a consultant for the Botanical Gardens and helped find some animals for them. But a lot of them, they were being dumped by people coming in on ships from places like Indonesia or Malaysia, and they'd have these things and then decide they didn't want them. So they would take them, put them, in, and a lot of them stayed at the house my mother and Ken were living in in Taitan, the lovely old building with big gardens. Your mother and stepfather came back here permanently. Yes, my father came back independently. When he was here, he lived in I think McDonald Road from memory. So I left school in the summer of '66. Autumn '66, I joined HSBC as a foreign staff trainee to come out to Asia. After a while, the banking wasn't for me at all. I started to become interested in the wine business. My mother had good connections, and eventually, I got a job offer from AS Watson. It was a very different operation. It had only about two chemist shops. It had, hadn't even bought Park and Shop then. Sir Douglas Clegg was chairman of Hutchison in the building, Prince's Building, their office. And we didn't have a telex machine or anything in those days. <laughs> Very primitive. And I'd have to go up to Miss Douglas Clegg's secretary and say, please, can I use your telegram? Wine was pretty small then. Uh, beer was quite big. Cognac was very big, totally dominated. What was your access, I mean, in terms of, I mean, you still got very much, Mao is still in charge in 71, he would then die, Mao Zedong would die well, in he died in 96. I was yeah. down on the beach with one of my key wine suppliers, who Frenchman, and we were in Cannes, I was on holiday, and we were on the beach about to have lunch, and that's when they delivered the English papers and on the front page news was Chairman Mao dies and that was the big change for China obviously. I mean when you look at you coming here in 71 I mean what was was the mainland completely shut off I mean did you just go oh, as far much. as so where were you doing business I mean just within Hong Kong and out? Initially we were just in Hong Kong it was only years later that the China started in the 80s that China became a market our focus when I started was 100% Hong Kong now, a few years after Mao's death, you actually create or you're, you're involved in a, uh, a wine called Dynasty, Dynasty uh, which right. is, is a, a, a partly a, a Chinese creation. Absolutely. The, the joint venture was signed by Remy Martin and the municipal authorities in Tianjin. It was the first one with a foreign company, not specific about wine, just joint venture. There was a Hong Kong company did the first one, and Remy became the second one, and the first foreign overseas company. Probably about 80, actually, very early days. And we had to come up with a label design, a name. So it was a joint venture with the idea that you would be making Using it in a... Chinese wine produced to Western standards. To be sold where? To be sold mostly in China, but wherever Remy had distribution networks. When it was eventually launched in the early 80, 82, I think, we had the job in Hong Kong because they couldn't do it in China. <laughs> they didn't know how to do the paperwork or everything. So it was shipped down here. So it was made in China? Absolutely, in Tianjin. So we'd chosen the label design, the bottle shape, 
the name Dynasty TV show was hugely popular, so that was one thing. And you think of Dynasty with China, Ming, Qing, whatever Dynasty. So we thought that was an easy name, easy to pronounce. Everybody knows the names. So that became the brand name. Describe the wine to me. Well, it was probably based slightly on a German style of wine because that was very popular in those days. I mean, obviously, if you go to wine auctions now, uh, you know, wine and, and collecting wine has become massive in this area. Mm. You've also got any number of um, vineyards on, on the mainland now. So it's, it's um, become much more the norm. But in terms of those early days, in the late 1970s when you were involved in this dynasty wine, what were the mainland tastes? Well, they didn't... I don't think they knew wine at all. The idea of grape wine, I don't think there was anything, frankly. Now, up in Tianjin, was there a specific reason why... Is it sort of like crisp weather? Uh, good question. I'm not sure. <laughs> yes, it was probably cooler, less humid. It was probably the right sort of location, they decided. And so, was it grapes that naturally grew in China, or you actually got some from French or German I think vineyards? Initially, there might have been a small amount of imported wine just to help with the blend, but mostly it was, and eventually, 100%. And so, how did the brand do? Did very well in China, went up to millions of cases, not quite so well overseas. Tell me about your handover wine. Oh, that well, it was a bit of a disaster. We got three top Bordeaux chateaus participate in so we had a wooden box with it was actually six bottles of different chateaux so it was Chateau L'Angelus Cos d'Estonel de Crubo Caillou Chateau Pichon Lalande Rosin Segla and Vieux Chateau Certain all from the 97 vintage which wouldn't have been released till about 99 so everything had changed <laughs> you know the Asian financial crisis and 97 Vintage wasn't very interesting, so we put this all together. Nobody was interested in anything linked to the handover by then. And um, we had to just sell the wine as individual wines, get rid of the wooden boxes we'd produce, <laughs> dump them. You coming here in 71, would Lang Kwai Fong have existed as a concept? Absolutely not. It was a very quiet, apart from Wan Chai, there were very few places in the early 70s to go to. I mean, it was really only one shy if you want to go out at night. And, not, and, and hotels. And not many. Well, there was the Hilton, the Mandarin, later the Excelsior on this side, three or four on Kowloon side. There weren't too many then. And not that many independent Western-style restaurants compared to now. So it was Jimmy's Kitchen? Jimmy's Kitchen and a few... There were a few others, but it was a pretty small selection then. What did you see about Lan Kwai Fong building up? Well, it was quite an exciting time, I guess. Disco became a big thing. And then Lan Kwai Fong really changed and became the big place to go at night time, and to some extent still is. My thanks to David Webster. I'm hoping David can twist his sister's arm to come on the programme, as she was previously a pop star here in Hong Kong. For the second half of the programme, I talked to park ranger Chris Ledismo, the head of wildlife security at the NGO Save the Elephants, which is based in Nairobi. For balance, I'll also be talking to representatives of the ivory trade in a later programme. Chris was here a couple of weeks ago to speak at a second Legislative Council public hearing on the government's proposed ivory ban, 
which will not take effect until the end of 2021. Chris says that's far too late and describes how deadly the trade is, both for the demise of the African elephant, but also Chris has seen members of his team murdered. My name is Chris Ladismo from Save the Elephant. I'm the head of uh, anti-forcing security officer working in Samburu National uh, Reserve in Northern Kenya. My daily work is to patrol with rangers daily basis. Uh, I'm working with uh, different con- community conservancy rangers, Kenya Wildlife Service, to make sure that our elephants are safe. So we do our patrols in daily basis. But it's a huge area to cover, isn't it? Yes, it's a huge area to cover. It has a very challenging um, terrains, very rough areas, difficult zones. So it has many challenges. How big is your team? Well, my team, I do work with the different conservancies. And each conservancy may have at least uh, 14 to 20 teams defense of the bigger areas. So I work in different conservancies. I don't have the real team that I'm working with. I do move from this conservancy to this conservancy, helping them to patrol together. So what's a conservancy? It's a different team from different tribes. Now, you're part of a, a Maasai tribe, so can you tell me about that? Yes, I'm a Samburu by tribe, and um, most of the community conservancies are based in the which tribe they have. They have also one, uh, some conservancies that they have a joint team, so different, con- different tribes. So I'm a Samburu, and I believe in elephants. Elephants are part of my culture. Yes. So can you tell me about that in terms of, you know, when you were growing up, how did you, you know, when you say elephants are part of your culture, how do you know, how do you regard the elephant? I do respect the elephants. Once I was young, I have seen elephants. I have grown with a place where there's so many elephants. Can you describe to me what it's like to see a herd of African elephants for you as a, as a Maasai tribesman? Elephants were crossing the river with their calves. So sweet that the kids would just play. And if you find also when they're browsing, grazing around the road where you're driving, if you stop the car, put off the engine, stay quiet and watching them, you will see the young calf will come and start playing to your car. So if you look at them, they're just like human beings. So you love to see them. They're very intelligent, aren't they? Yes, they're very intelligent. That they have a big female, which we call the matriarch. She's the leader. And they have this good memory that they will memorize where to go. This area is safe. This area is not safe. And she leads her group. So the, the, the rest of the group will wait the signal of the matriarch to lead them where to go and what to do. Now, in terms of the area where you are in Kenya, is this a, a, a concept, you know, when you're fighting against poachers in that area, is this a, a, where you are based? Is this a conservation park? Is it a huge area? Can people go there on safari? Well, yesterday before, we had only national reserves. And we, uh, as we are growing, and the people, the population of people also are growing, we have also created some conservancies in the community where we can, it's a protected areas, But the elephants also move randomly to unprotected areas. So you can just see they're very calm when they're in protected areas, they're very wild when they're outside the protected areas. So it's a mixture of um, difficulties. 
Now, as a ranger, who pays your salary? Is this the government or...? I'm working with a charity organisation, Save the Elephant, so that's where I got my salary. So it's a charity, Save the Elephant. And um, in terms of your daily work, so you, you will travel, uh, do you have a, like a, what I would call a 4x4, four four, like a Land Rover? Is that what you drive? Uh, yes, I drive a Land Cruiser just to go and get my team, drop them somewhere, walk by, walk by foot, and uh, we will do all that. So do you do a lot of tracking as well? Yes, we do. Poaching is obviously the success rate at killing elephants, also um, the dangers to the rangers. So, I mean, are you fully armed? Do you have a gun? Well, I myself don't have a gun while I'm in my camp. But once I go to the rangers, I have to register to have a gun and join them, patrol together. As we know, we were working in a very challenging area, very, uh, very risky, and uh, we have to, to be well armed. In the past year, can you describe to me, you know, um, have there been many elephants that have been killed? Yes, I remember the year 2010 to 2012, many elephants have been killed in, the, uh, in our areas that we do patrol, like 24 hours patrol. And once you are in another area, you had again another gunshots behind you. You got another communication from different teams that there is something going on here. So we keep just running and uh, it's a huge area and we were not that many. No, it's, it's, a, it's a hugely challenging job and also a very dangerous one. I mean, what do you do if you come across a, a poacher? We will try our best to arrest. But, you know, these criminals, once they sighted you first, they shoot you. I have yeah. survived several ambushes. Really? Yeah. You've survived several ambushes yes. with your work. Why do you do it? I mean, you could have another job that's much safer. Well, I have a passion with the elephants. I fully work with my willingness to protect this elephant because if no one will protect them, who will? We will all end up being a victim of poachers in one way or another. How do you feel about coming to Hong Kong? Very excited. This is my first trip out of Kenya and I came to Hong Kong. And I will love the Hong Kong people support the government or the legislative laws to stop this threat. Many people buy alphabets and they pass through here. Why in Hong Kong? They have to stop that. Were you talking at the Legislative Council this week? Yes, I did. And I give out my speech for them to push and stop this threat. In Kenya, can you tell me the name of, is it the park, the conservation park where you work? I work in Samburu National Reserve, that's in northern Kenya. Samburu is my tribe, and we have also a national reserve called Samburu. So that's where I come best, and I work within Samburu National Reserve, outside Samburu National Reserve, in our neighboring cons community conservancies in Samburu. That's northern Kenya. We would like to show the rest of the world that we don't want pushing to continue. Now, um, you were describing within um, your team, how many men, or is it also women? Well, yes, there's also women. And I'm very confident with them. I, they love their jobs. Are they Samburu as well? Yes, they are Samburu as well. So you've got a team of how big? I work in a team of 18 people, but I keep moving to different teams. Sometimes I go to 14, Tiolov, depends of the area that we are going to patrol. 
now on t today you've got your rangers uniform on but i've also seen photos where you were standing outside the hong kong government building to show your opposition to the ivory trade and to support the ivory ban and you were wearing your maasai traditional dress so can you describe that to me what you wear well yes when i go to my daily duty as a ranger i have to put on full uniform to look like a ranger and when i go back to my community maybe on off leave off duty i have to dress that way and walk as a, as a samburu person so that's our dress and it's very beautiful if you dress like the um, full traditional attires yes someone else from different tribe can tell this is samburu person that is walking in this street but here in hong kong there i don't know if they have realized that i'm maasai or samburu I have no idea but everyone was looking at me who is this person yes it's very very striking we really are at the epicenter of the ivory trade now they want to do a ban for 2021 uh, do you think that the ban should come sooner i would like the hong kong people to push it the 2021 is too long i would love if they push that law to close it in the very uh, few years cause now without compensation. You say that you've survived several ambushes. So have some of your team been killed? Yes, some of my team have been killed in different areas and I survived that. I was driving in a bush area, very steep place, going down to the river and I've not noticed someone is behind me. Luckily, I've been noticed with another team that if you arrived in that area, be careful because we're tracking some poachers that have been spotted in this area. So I, I arrived there before the ground deep arrived and we're trying to go quickly to meet them and go together. Unfortunately, they started shooting that I can't go out from the driver's uh, door. I have to jump to the other side. All the team at the back of the land cruiser were all on the right side, jumping to the left side. Luckily, my colleague who was sitting in front of the car here, he just jumped quickly and started replying towards that area. And we can't see anything. We can only just see leaves going up, dust coming down. They're just shooting around the cars. Luckily, they didn't get us. Who are the poachers? I mean, are they fellow Kenyans? Yes, they're fellow Kenyans. And they have also these middlemen from all over the world. You never know. They're using the local people. You know a foreigner or someone from different part of the country has no idea of your area. So he has to use a local person from that area. As a Samburus, we don't kill elephants. But in the recent uh, years, we found some few individuals. They've been also isolated from their community. No one wants them to see them in the area because it's a taboo for a Samburu to go and kill elephant. It's difficult. It's a, it's a taboo. It's just you have killed your brother. You it's, it's a taboo to, to kill an elephant? Yes, it's a taboo in Samburu to kill an elephant. As a ranger, do you have any army training? Yes, I did have some uh, military training in the Kenya Wildlife Training School in Manyani. Do you have situations where you come across an elephant, say, that has been killed, and then you have to do, deal with, say, a young calf? Yes. I've come with several cases like that that I've seen. A female elephants have been pushed, and her two young calves, four years, seven years, they're all around her. Luckily, the other family just came and... Uh, the other? Elephant group came and take them off. I think that was their relatives. And they've also treated several injured elephants. How do you do that? We call the Kenya Wildlife Fed. It triangulates them. 
So you actually give it a tranquilizer? Yes. Uh, give the elephant, and then you've actually treated yes. elephants in the field? Yes. We did that several times. Yeah, and that has helped. Now, surely, when you're observing, uh, as you're going around, you're monitoring these elephants, so it's not all... Uh, I mean, of course, part of it is anti-poaching operations, but you must also get to know the different elephants. Uh, well, yes, in Samburu National Reserve, I know many different groups, by their families and by their names, that are normally roaming around that area. So we know, even if they go outside, you know, this is a family from that area. My thanks to park ranger Chris Ledismo, the head of wildlife security at the NGO Save the Elephants. For more information about Chris's work, you can visit savetheelephants.org or their local partner in Hong Kong, wildaid.org. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.